The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. You know, I just love the way that we can gather together on the Lord's Day and affirm the faith that we share together. Uh, just as we recite the Apostles' Creed there, uh, just to think of all of the generations of believers who have gone before us, who have declared these things uh, to be the truth that they hold to. And for us to stand here and do the same is kind of a, just a humbling experience. That uh, kind of caught me off guard a little bit today. I wasn't necessarily prepared for that one to make me emotional anyway, but. Well, I will be wrapping up this short series on assurance today, and uh, this has been a wonderful study for me personally. I am hopeful that the Spirit of God has used these messages to grow our confidence in Christ and in His promises. He certainly has used them in my own life. In this series, we have looked at the legitimacy of assurance, the foundation of assurance, and the danger of false assurance. Today, we will conclude by looking at the cultivation of assurance. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 and beginning with verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's holy, inspired Word. May He now graciously bless the preaching of it. Well, as humans living in a fallen world, there are certain things that we all have in common. One thing we have in common is the human experience of being disappointed by people. We often put our confidence in things or people who let us down. If we took a survey around the room, we could probably hear stories from every person here. Some stories would be less serious than others, but some would be downright tragic. Some stories we would already know about, but some stories would be a surprise to us. This is part of life under the sun, as Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes. We're all familiar with Stories of being let down by someone. 
a business partner who didn't hold up their end of the bargain, a mentor who gave us bad advice, a spouse who is not the image of idealism that we had expected them to be. Life often requires us to depend on others. But the problem is, in this life, everyone is going to disappoint you eventually. Unfortunately, this experience we have as humans living among humans tends to make us jaded and cynical. But sometimes the person who lets us down is ourselves. I have read that baseball players who are in a slump tend to gain their confidence, or actually their lack of confidence, from their moment-to-moment performance. When they strike out or make an error in the field, it causes them to further doubt their abilities. One famous baseball player, Ichiro Suzuki, was asked, asked about how to get out of a slump. His response was, if I'm in a slump, I ask myself for advice. Too often we are like Ichiro. In spiritual matters, we tend to look to ourselves. We also tend to look at our own performance as the litmus test of our faith. When we do this, it doesn't take long for our spiritual confidence to be shaken. It's important to recognize that assurance is a delicate thing. This infallible assurance is not such an essential part of faith that it is always fully experienced alongside faith. True believers may wait a long time and struggle with many difficulties before obtaining it. Assurance is not a guarantee that is always fully experienced alongside true saving faith. A person can be truly converted and struggle with assurance. Now, I don't think I need to spend much time convincing you that assurance can be shaken. I'm sure we've all experienced much in our own lives the reality of that fact. We can likely all relate with the Father in Mark chapter 9. When Jesus questioned His lack of faith, He cried out, I believe! Help my unbelief! We are aware that assurance is delicate. It can be easily shaken when we look to ourselves or to others besides Christ for our confidence. So the question we must ask is how can we cultivate assurance? Well, in our text, there is a reminder of what we saw in my previous messages. The primary foundation of our assurance is the person and work of Christ. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by our good works, it seemed if you're paying attention. That's not what it says. It doesn't say by our good works. It says we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? By the blood of Jesus. 
by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. That is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Draw near with what? With a true heart in full assurance of faith. We are called here to a full assurance of faith because we have such a great Savior. He is the foundation of our confidence. When the author here describes our entrance into the holy places, he is referencing the Old Testament type of the innermost parts of the tabernacle. Are you familiar with the concept of a type? It is a person or a thing or an event that historically happened but prophetically points to a greater reality in the future. For example, the tabernacle was a real tent that the Israelites carried with them and set up wherever they went. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. But this historical thing also points to a greater future reality. It points to Messiah, to Jesus Himself. Remember the prophecy of Isaiah quoted in Matthew 1.23. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This type of the tabernacle is a picture of Emmanuel, a picture of God with us. It is representative of the very presence of God Himself. And we now have access to this presence in Christ. In the Old Testament, this privilege was given with certain prohibitions. At Mount Sinai, when God gave the law to Israel, only Moses could go up onto the mountain. No one else could even touch it. Not even the livestock on penalty of death. In the tabernacle and the temple, only the high priest could enter into the holy places. And that only once a year. And even then, only after following strict ceremonial ritual. When Isaiah the prophet found himself in God's presence, it was a revelation that terrified him. He was certain he was going to die. Yet here, the author of Hebrews is telling us that we can boldly enter into the presence of God with confidence. But this confidence certainly is not in ourselves. It is in Christ alone. It is not in our own abilities. It is in His ability to fulfill the law on our behalf. It is not in our own merits. It is in His merits as the approved sacrifice and payment of our sin debt. It is not in our own choices. But it is in His choice of us as His bride. 
not even in our own affections. Our confidence is in His great love for us. So what? What does that mean for you and me in our day-to-day lives? What are we to do with this confidence? Well, the author gives us three things to do in response to our Savior and the greatness of His salvation. The first is found in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see the imperative there? We are to draw near. Draw near to what? Well, remembering the first part of our text, since we have Christ and His work as both our high priest and perfect sacrifice, Let us draw near to the very presence of God in the holy places with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Relying on Christ for our confidence. And how are we to draw near? Well, the next line tells us, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The idea of having our hearts sprinkled. What is that all about? Well, this requires a little understanding of the context. (coughs) In Hebrews chapter 9, the chapter before uh, our text tonight, the author reminds us that the sprinkling of ashes on the people made them ceremonially clean. In addition to this, Moses sprinkled blood on all the instruments of the tabernacle, as well as on the people, saying it was the blood of the covenant. This is the way the ceremonial, typological things were cleansed. But that was ceremonially clean only. It had no power to cleanse the conscience. They still carried the weight from the guilt of their sin. But now, Through the blood of Christ. The perfect sacrifice once and for all. We have been given the means to have a cleansed conscience. Now note that the sprinkling of our hearts is not something that we do by ourselves. We cannot cleanse our own hearts. We cannot gain a good conscience by our own efforts. Now, for those of you who are grammar nerds, The Greek word here is in the passive mood and the perfect tense. Now for the rest of us who are not grammar nerds, I offer this explanation. What we learn from it being in the passive mood is that the action of sprinkling is something that is done to us and not by us. Our hearts have been made clean by someone else. We do not sprinkle our own hearts. We did not cleanse ourselves. We have been cleansed and set apart as holy by God Himself. And the fact that it is in the perfect tense means that it is something that happened once at a point in time and does not need to happen again. It was done once 
for all time. It is the blood of Christ that gains us forgiveness. One sacrifice for all time that has cleansed us of our guilt. Our assurance comes from the reality that we have been made clean. Not just ceremonially clean, but even our conscience has been cleansed. And this, the author associates with baptism. Look back at verse 22. At the end of the verse. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Pastor Brian has taught us about this recently. Remember your baptism. It is a picture that God has graciously given to you to show that you have been accepted by God as one who is united to Jesus. You were united to Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And He has promised that you will be united to Him even more fully in glorification. So with this understanding that we have been cleansed of our unrighteousness and are united to Christ, let us draw near to the presence of God. The author gives us a second command in verse 23. To hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. What is this confession that we are to hold fast to? Is it the confession of our promise to serve God? Is it our confession of our love for God? No. It's the confession of our hope that we are told to hold on to. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. Well, what does that mean? Simply this. Hold fast to the expectation that Christ will fulfill all His promises. And that as those who are united to Christ, we have full ownership of these promises. Let me say that again. Hold fast to the expectation that Christ will fulfill all of the promises He has made. And that as those who are united to Christ, we have full ownership of these promises. The promise of complete redemption through Christ is guaranteed because He who promised is faithful. The promise that we will stand on that glorious shore and look into the indescribable beauty of the eternal splendor of our great King is assured because He who promised is faithful. The promise that He will never leave you nor forsake you is certain because He who promised is faithful. Well, the third thing that the author directs us to do is found in verse 24. We are to consider something. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
How do we cultivate assurance? Well, we don't do it alone. In our day, there is a tendency to see the entrance into God's presence on an individual level only. We are certainly free to go to God in prayer and seek Him in His Word as individuals and as families. And we should do this. But that is not the focus of the writer of Hebrews in this passage. This passage is primarily talking about entering the presence of God in the holy assembly. As Pastor Brian has been describing in his series on worshiping God's way, it is about the congregational worship on the Lord's day. In verse 24, we are instructed to consider how we can stir up one another to love and good works. One another, not individually. Remember, we are called to enter into the worship of God with boldness and confidence because of Christ. We are called to remember Christ. Significantly, verses 24 and 25 tell us how this is done. We can and should and do remember Christ on our own outside the gathering of believers on the Lord's day. But the primary way that we lay hold of assurance is by being reminded of Christ through the stirring up of one another on the Lord's day. This is what happens when we stand and sing together. This is what happens when we pray together. This is what happens when we hear the Word of God read and preached. This is what happens when we participate in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. How do we lay hold of assurance? By ordinary means. There is no extraordinary event or miracle needed. It is attained by the regular, ordinary, week-in, week-out gathering of God's people engaging in gospel worship on the Lord's day. Through these ordinary means, we are changed by the Spirit of God. Not through any superstitious, magical incantations or performances, but by the Lord's use of ordinary means. Now, it's important here at the conclusion of this message to make a very crucial point. If you've been sleeping, I don't hold that against you at all, but now's the time to wake up and hear me clearly. There is a real opportunity to miss the point here. We are, by our very nature, legalists. And that means that we tend to hear everything through that filter. Do you know what it means to be a legalist? What do I mean by this? Many see this term as referencing a person who believes in a doctrine of justification by works. And if that were the case, the solution would be really easy. We would just tell a person to stop. Believe instead on Christ alone for your justification. Piece of cake. Done. Problem solved. But this is only addressing 
an external facet of legalism. Internally, at the heart of the matter, even a person who believes in justification by faith in Christ can mix the law and the gospel in a way that causes a codependence. They partly depend on Christ and partly depend on their own works and efforts to remain in good standing before God. A legalist has a distorted view of God, seeing Him as harsh and hard to please. They see God as being ready to strike you down as soon as you make a mistake. What it means to be a legalist is to separate the benefits of Christ from the person of Christ Himself. In other words, legalism assumes that the benefits that we enjoy in Christ, salvation, peace, joy, assurance, on and on, that these can be attained by any means other than by attaining Christ Himself. We come to this place every Lord's Day and we gather as the people of God, the holy convocation. But we must not fall into the trap that any of the things we do produce the benefits we enjoy. It is not in ourselves that we will find full assurance as spoken of in this passage. Not in our own efforts. Not in our own reasoning. Not even in our own affection towards God. Our assurance is found only in Christ. It is found in the fact that God Himself loves us eternally so much that He looked on us while we were yet sinners and saved us. It is not like God hated us until we were cleaned up enough to be presentable. And now the Father is forced to love us because Christ has paid the price. No. The Father has loved you from all eternity. As has the Son. As has the Spirit. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you are loved by God. What more assurance do you need? This love is not based on your performance or your grasp of doctrine or even your own love for God. We love Him because He loved us first. His love came first. Now, if you have not trusted in Christ, the invitation is open. Come. Trust in the work that He has done to secure your salvation. No one who calls on the name of the Lord will be turned away. All who call on Him will in no wise be cast out. If you continue to carry a burden of sin and self-reliance, come to the cross of Christ. There is nowhere else in the whole universe that you can find rest 
and salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. He loves you. And He is calling you today to believe His Word and His promises. For those of you who are in Christ, don't look to your own efforts to gain the benefits of Christ that are already yours in Christ. Encourage one another with these words. As we gathered together, singing and praying and reading and preaching and listening, as you join into the service, you are part of the dialogue between God Almighty and His royal bride. Remember, your guarantee lies in the person of Christ and is completely outside of yourself. Do not succumb to the temptation of legalism which seeks to acquire the benefits outside of the benefactor. Assurance is found in the person of Jesus. Rest, my friend. In Christ alone. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.